So thank you everyone for coming, and it's a pleasure to be here. My name's Daniel, for all those online who might not know me. I'm a church member here at Poplar, and today it's my privilege to be leading the Bible study. Uh, I'm going to read from the scriptures in Proverbs, but before I do that, I'll always begin with a prayer. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is always a privilege when your people gather around under your word. And Lord, thank you for the sheer wisdom found in the Proverbs, and when understood rightly by the aid of your Holy Spirit, it can do wonders for life. Father, thank you that you are a wise God, and that you give wisdom to those who ask you without finding fault. So Lord, I pray today, may your Holy Spirit shed light on the word. Would he help me to preach, and may your word come alive powerfully for the benefit of us all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the passage I'm going to be reading today is quite short, but it's Proverbs 11, verses 23 to 28. And you will find that on page 635 in the church Bibles. So we've been going through Proverbs in the Wednesday Bible study. And um, this is the next section of Proverbs. So Proverbs chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, page 635 in the church Bibles. It reads, The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. So reads the word of God. So I've titled today's talk, The Gladness or the Goodness of Generosity and the sadness of stinginess. So we're going to look at a topic of Christian living that many people might find a bit uncomfortable, and that is on the topic of giving. And many people will have a heightened defense on this topic because, sadly, there have been many cases where pastors and church leaders have communicated or acted in a particular way to coerce their congregation into giving large amounts of money, often to fuel a lavish lifestyle. So this is sometimes called the prosperity gospel, and it's helpful to identify so you know what not to believe. So the prosperity gospel, in essence, is the teaching that God's will for your life is for you to be healthy and wealthy with no problems and afflictions in life. And if you're not, it's because you're sinning or you're not believing in God, and that it is by no means God's will for you to suffer in any way. And um, it's also called things like name and claim. It's also called the health and wealth gospel. And... Because of these teachings, a lot of Christians are very wary whenever pastors or church leaders speak on the topic of money. Plus, it's not very British to talk about money, which makes it all the more harder to talk about it in a Bible study in England. But since tonight's passage touches upon it, and also countless other places in the Bible speak on the issue, and also many lives have been ruined by love of material things, it's good to give this subject good treatment in tonight's Bible study. But first, I want to talk about um, what the first verse of this passage is, is analyzing. So my, I'm dividing this talk into three sections. And the first section 
is looking at your thoughts and desires. So if we look at verse 23, it says, The desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. So the Bible in general puts a huge emphasis on what you think about, what things you desire, because our primary purpose is to love and desire God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the reason why we were made, to worship, enjoy, and glorify our Creator. But also, when, what you think controls the way you live, and Christians are commanded to live in a certain way, a holy way, in accordance and obedience to God's commandments. There are certain things we are commended to think about, and we'll touch upon this later, but it's Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, and Colossians 3, 1 to 2. And there are th- certain things which are warned against. You'll find that in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. But I guess the first question I want to ask you guys is, what do you spend most of your time thinking about? When you're lying on the bed or walking about in your day, what is it that your mind dreams about or what your mind fantasizes about? And I wanted to go through a list of common things people often think about and see how much that resonates with your desires. So, things such as marriage and relationships, sexual intimacy, the dream job and career, financial success and riches, a comfortable life, a lovely house in a good location, food and drink, holidays abroad, political power and influence, and so on. And I guess like, the question is, how much does that match up with what you think about in your day-to-day lives? And the reason I did that exercise is because it's very important to analyze what's in the depth of your hearts, and that determines what you think about most and what you're most affectionate about. And tonight's proverb says it's vitally right to have right, God-honoring desires. Because the consequences can be dire if you get this wrong, but so sweet if you get it right. So if we look at verse 23 again, so it says, The desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. And I had a look at the word desire. So the word desire here means in the, in the Hebrew, which it was originally written in, a wish or a longing of one's heart for. And the, proverb, the author of Proverbs says that depending on your desires, there's one or two destinations. So we've touched upon the first. The first is the desire or expectation of the wicked. The word desire used in the first section is the same word as expectation in the second part of that verse. But what is it that the wicked desire? And the Bible speaks of many things that the wicked desire. So if I just may quote some passages which are quite well known to us, I suspect, in the New Testament about what the wicked desire. So if I may read from Romans chapter 1, verse 28, 29. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So that's the list of the kind of things that the Bible says the wicked think about. So primarily atheistic, in their minds they have no conception of God, and they live as if God doesn't exist and they're their own, their own king. And that follows on from the, the sins that 
I've just mentioned followed on, follows on from that mindset. Other things, so like this is backed up with what Galatians 5 says. This is what the natural man thinks. So the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and such things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I hope these two passages of scripture help us to like, have an understanding of the kind of things that go on in the mind of the wicked. And these are the very things we are not to think and to put to death each time they come to mind. Now flipping on to the righteous, so that the righteous person will be having desires and longings of that which is good. And what are good things to desire? Thankfully, the New Testament is full of this. So Jesus says in Matthew 36, verse 33, God's kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus says, seek, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So these are the kind of things we should be thinking about, striving for, and desiring in our lives. Philippians 4.8, true things. That list of things that Paul says to, to think about. True things, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things, commendable things, and praiseworthy things. So if you can think of something in this category, this is what the Bible tells us to think about and fantasize about. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, um, the, the apostle Paul writes, like this is the section where Paul is commanding the Colossian church to think of heavenly things and not on earthly things. So he instructs us to think about Christ, raised from the dead, and sat on the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory. He is sovereign in all creation, orchestrating it to his own will and purposes. And we're supposed to desire and think about heaven, where we'll be with Christ in a kingdom that's free from sin, death, affliction, disease, and justice. And this will be forever. So this is what we are to earnestly desire and to think about. And just honing on the point of why it's so important to like analyze and examine what we think about because where will each of these desires end so the wicked and the righteous so the text says the righteous only ends in good so good in heaven ultimately when they are vindicated by christ often good on earth so when you think and do righteous things it res results in a joy in knowing that christ was honored in your mind and in your actions it results in a good reputation if you only think about good things and do good things you happen to have a good reputation and also um, you have a clear conscience because in, if you're a Christian and you do what God says in good conscience you can go to sleep tonight without any guilt or any shame about doing things that you knew were wrong or desire things that were wrong um, flipping on to the wicked so like what is the end result of the wicked so the fact is when people fantasize about wicked things they naturally carry them out and those who live, and the Bible warns us that, like, especially in this passage, that if people carry out those wicked things, number one, people on earth will hate them. The recipients of those people who do the wicked acts will hate them and revile them, doing that person no good. But also, there's something worse than that. Someone who continues to engage in evil thoughts and evil actions will ultimately come under the wrath of God. And there are two passages of scripture I really want to say just to warn you about how serious it is not to have evil desires because of the results that ensue. So Romans chapter 8 verses 5 to 8 reads, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So those people who have these wicked desires and carry them out can't please God. And also, the passage just says it results in death. And this death is spiritual, because when someone dies, they meet God as their judge. They will be judged, and because of their sin, they'll be found guilty and sentenced into an eternity of death away from God's presence. So that's one passage which puts it seriously about why we should not have wicked thoughts. And then the other passage of scripture I had in mind is Colossians 3, verse 5 to 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So the scripture is crystal clear. Like, if these kind of things are in your mind and you carry these out, there's only one thing for you, and that is the wrath of God. So it's vitally important to get our thoughts and our desires right, because it can be the difference between eternal heaven and eternal hell, as well as earthly honor and earthly distress. So that was point one, your thoughts and desires and how important it is to get it right. Now, I guess I want to move on to the main thrust and body of today's talk because I think that's what the passage is mainly honing in about, and that's the issue of giving. So I titled part two of my talk, The Goodness of Generosity. So this is the thing I want to focus about, like generosity and giving, because this is what the passage of Scripture says. And it's been said before by Paul and Henry and those who have taught in Bible study that actually, like, the way Proverbs is organized is that it follows a structure called Hebrew parallelism. And what that means is that there's two contrasting um, statements to draw out the point, and they're placed next to each other to make it very clear and distinct. And for this section of the, tonight's Bible study, I want to talk about the issue of the role of generosity. Um, something I think is important to say front up is that what will help us to, like, put things into perspective is to realize and understand that everything belongs to God. Made by God, belongs to God, and given from God. And the, way, the reason I say that is that because it helps, because when we're thinking about the things that God has entrusted to us, our possessions, if we realize it's from God, it will make it that much easier to stop having such a tight hold on. Because if we believe that things that are in our lives are ours, of course we're going to find it difficult to relinquish because we think we have a permanent say on it or stake on it. But if we understand and remember that it's God's, we hold it with a loose hand, understanding it was given to us by God, and God can take it away just as simply. So I think that's always good to bear in mind. So I want to like, look at verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another question to you guys. When you consider someone in need, and you happen to be in a position to help, what is your initial instinct? So when news came in about the war in Ukraine and they told you about the dire need for food, aid, medical supplies and other provisions, what was your first thought? So the Bible teaches here and many other places that it is a good thing to want and also to give with an unrestricted heart, with a freedom to the Lord, without an attitude that is reluctant to relinquish possessions. It's littered throughout scripture, so like this section I'll be turning to a lot of Bible passages because I want to see, like, generosity is commanded in so many places in scripture and that we'd be doing God a, like, dishonor if we don't 
seriously take it in. So, case point number one. Remember when Jesus was um, observing with his disciples this widow who was giving two coins to the temple? So everyone else who was richer came in with their bags of money, and then Jesus notices this one widow gives in two coins. And she willingly did it without letting factors such as, how am I going to afford food? How am I going to afford this? this the scriptures say this is all that she had. To, in fact, Jesus said this is all she had to live on. And yet she gave it freely. As a result, that woman and her actions were commended by Jesus. Her actions have been memorialized in scripture for all ages. And she'll have rewards in the heavenly kingdom. What a commendation of such an act. Also in Luke 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, and it's quite a famous passage, but it's, it's, it's beautiful. He says, he says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And this is just, like, this is just a highlight of like, the generosity of God. Like, Jesus is here encouraging people to be generous, like, not like... To understand that what's given to God will be honoured and God will give back. And it's, a, it's a fantastic verse and I, I understand that people might quote this out of context, but I do think the principle stands that a genuinely heartfelt, generous giving will be honoured and rewarded by God. And then there's Acts 20 where the Apostle Paul is quoting what Jesus says. He says, like, in all things I have known that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there's ample encouragement and plenty of scriptures to be encouraging us to be generous in our giving. So moving on to verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. I think it's important to say that when it comes to generosity, it's not just about money. Actually, I think it's things about like simple encouragements and words of blessing What's your attitude when a friend does better than you in an exam where you get 70% but they get 90%? I'll tell you what the natural human response is because I felt it in my own heart and it's one of envy. Um, <laughs> instead of congratulating them doing well, you actually begrudge them because you dislike the idea that someone did better than you. I think that's a matter of fact in human nature and it's a sad one. But... If someone does get 90%, you get 70%, what is an order is a commendation of saying, well done. They worked hard, undoubtedly, and got that result. And the generosity of spirit would involve congratulating and honoring that person who did better than you. What's more, I think the Christian is commanded to do this to the enemy. Remember what Jesus said, to bless your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? I think that is a very challenging thing to say. So, like, for example, when a non-Christian gets awarded for a humanitarian aid for doing something wonderful, such as um, medical, medical aid overseas or doing a great act of aid for the poor. We are to congratulate them and commend them because of his good works and not rubbishing them because they're not a Christian. And I think it's so rare today to see people giving due thanks and honor to those whom they disagree with or outside, outside their circle. So, like, I guess... For me, like, if I was in that position, like, I, like, it's so rare for me to give someone else thanks or like, praise for doing something, even though they're not Christian. But actually, the, the thing that they did is worthy of praise, and them being a not Christian isn't the point. 
So giving thanks and due honour is a Christ-like sanctifying behaviour because it's giving honour to whom it is due, as it says in Romans 13, verse 7, and it actually brings honour and glory to Christ because it's a fantastic character to have. And in addition, if it was not any more... Um, if you needed any more incentive, it shouldn't be our primary motivator at this point, but it's good to be generous in spirit because when you speak well of other people, and if they do well or if they get an achievement, actually, there's a reciprocity if you should do well. And that's not the main point about why you should give thanks, but if in the case that you do well, they are much more inclined to say, well done, and congratulate you because you showed it to them. It's just the way human nature and psychology works. So these are just like so many benefits about why you should be generous in spirit. Verse 26, part B. So I'm looking at this point. But a blessing on, is on the head of him who sells it. And this is in the context of like the first person is someone who has something needed, dare I say scarce, but doesn't want to give it away. And so the people cursed him because they're deni- that person is denying them something they need, something essential such as grain for food to eat. And I always thank my mum for telling me this um, story, reflecting back on the life of her parents and her grandparents. Um, my mum's parents and grandparents lived in China during um, the communistic times and the Cultural Revolution. And that was a very difficult time where there was a scarcity of food. And I always remembered being touched by the beautiful story that my mum told about her parents how there was such a shortage of food. And yet, because they had a heart, they didn't want to eat it all themselves, but they would gladly give it to anyone else who was starving. And I thought that was just beautiful and touching. And I think most people know why it is beautiful and touching. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to give away something that's scarce and that's precious, but you do it because you're generous in spirit. I think that's what this is touching about. Like, but blessing is on the head of him who sells it. You give away something scarce and needed, and people will thank you and honor you for that. And yes, it's such a wonderful history to our family, and I thank my mum for telling me that. Uh, I think, continuing on from the section of the goodness of generosity, verse 27 says, Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favour, but evil comes to him who searches for it. So, as I understand it, whoever diligently seeks goods refers to actively looking for opportunities to do good and to do them with aplomb. So to my shame, there have been times where I've deliberately walked a particular way because I would not encounter someone who was homeless. And the reason that is was because when I walk past people who are homeless, I have pangs of conscience to do something and help them. So in order to not feel those pangs of conscience, I deliberately walk into an area where I know there will be no homeless people so that I don't have to be generous. It's terrible, I know. And that's exactly what the scripture's like warning against and teaching the opposite. So I do apologize for that to those people who have overlooked and to God ultimately because it's in direct contravention to his word. And I think the scripture is saying we should be actively pursuing opportunities to do good because it's what we are created in Christ Jesus to do. Ephesians 2.10, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That is the role of the Christian life. We should seek that out. Now, we are in East London where there's many poor people, homeless people, people of ethnic minorities, and those who are, for one reason or another, on the streets. And may I charge us to like, look for these people sometimes. Like, these guys are in need. And 
I guess Christian action would involve buying food for the homeless person, for example. Um, they're often on the street starving. 99% of the people walk by past them without giving them a single acknowledgement, and they're often neglected. And I do think this is a, God does deliberately put them there so that we can give him glory by doing what is good. Other things, just like including inviting a stranger into your own home. So, like, showing hospitality to them and welcoming them, especially if they're from an ethnic minority, because these guys are so easily shunned by mainstream society because they're from a different culture, different language. It's very hard to get to know them. And there is a sense of fear when you encounter someone you don't fully understand or know. But it's, it's, it's a fantastic thing to do. And I'm so glad that I'm part of Poplar because you guys have shown me tremendous hospitality because even before I was a member, I was invited to countless lunches. And this hospitality was one of the main reasons or main draw factors that helped me to commit to this church as a member. So for example, I'm one of the examples of why it is so good to show hospitality. So don't give up. And speaking of Poplar, it brings me on to the local church. So God has arranged his church, his church worldwide, to be part of small local families, our local church. And we are to be committed to each other's family as a local church family. We have a covenant bond with each other in Christ. And therefore, we're to serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. God has arranged local church to be under the care and the shepherding of pastors I think the first thing I want to say about generosity to the local church is that a lot of people question the notion about paying a local pastor and therefore sometimes don't do it or overlook it. But I want to say both our Lord Jesus in Luke 10 when he says the laborer deserves his wages as well as the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18 shows us that we should be paying our pastors so that they can concentrate on preaching the word of God and looking after the local flock that God has entrusted to them. Because it is to your benefit to pay your pastors, because if they have their, their, their central needs paid for, they do not need to worry about how they're going to make ends meet, but instead can concentrate on preparing the word of God week after week, and also looking after the spiritual and the emotional distress of the people that God has given to them. So it's a good thing, and it's commanded in the scripture to pay your local pastor, and that's one of the ways you can be generous to your local church. And there are so many other ways you can be generous with your time. So if I list off the things that are happening at Poplar, think about these things and think about how many, if you can be generous in these contexts. So if we begin the week on Sunday, so on Sunday we have Sunday school, and there have been loads, of, like our members have been very committed in serving the children at Sunday school. Worked hard and I often feel bad because they're doing it week in, week out, and they do a fantastic job. But one of the ways you can be a generous person in the local church is by offering yourself for the Sunday school, whether a teacher or a server. Uh, other things that happen on a Sunday, even serving the tea on the tea. Like One of the things I love is that you can just enjoy a chat with fellow Christians after the service by over a cup of tea. Even serving your time and your effort with like the tea is a fantastic, generous thing to do. Monday, prayer meetings, simply by attending, you're being generous because you encourage other Christians when you be there. Tuesday, door-to-door knocking, it's encouraging for the person whom you're evangelizing with, and it's a great service of generosity to the people you're evangelizing, because that could be the time where they come to faith. Wednesday Bible studies, I'm encouraged by you guys coming, so thank you for your generosity and time and effort. Thursday, Henry's introduction to Christianity. Friday, young people's meeting. Saturday, Ed's preaching in open air. Basically, there are so many things in the local church you can be generous with, and it's not just money, it's time, effort, prayers, and these are wonderful things to be stuck into. 
So I, the passage like here, and also the other ones I've quoted in the New Testament, it's time and again commanded us to be generous with our time, money, and effort. And I guess we can feel anxious in doing so, probably because of a few things. Number one, we're a limited people. We have a limited like, t- amount of strength, time, and resources. So I guess like, the question is, like, why should we do it, and how can we do such a seemingly impossible thing? Um, point one I want to say to that, that is that our God is a generous God. So he supplies our every needs. Every day he gives us the things that we need, food, drink, clothing, shelter, friendship, family. The list goes on. And he does that not because we deserve it, but that's who he is. He's a gracious God who gives us things that we don't frankly deserve. And I didn't even mention in that list the most precious thing of all is one and only son, Jesus Christ. Um, I spoke about it before, but those things which are more scarce and precious are more difficult to give away. So if you think about the father giving away his only son, Jesus, there would never be anyone like him or ever again. And so the idea that he would give him up for undeserving sinners is an incredible, astonishing act of generosity. And so... If you're a Christian and you believe that and you're moved by the Holy Spirit to firmly build your life upon that, there will be a desire in your heart to follow likewise, call to be like our God. And one of the attributes of our wonderful God is to be generous. Second, God gives us his spirit when we become Christians. So we are empowered and transformed by him to do good works. So if you feel like you don't want to, don't want to or don't have the strength or have the resources, then pray. Because God promises that he will give you, by his generous grace, what you need. And so, supernaturally and unexplainably, whereas a few seconds ago you previously couldn't be bothered or didn't have the strength, suddenly as a result of asking God in prayer, the Spirit empowers you to do those good works. It's amazing, and we should try it more often, that when we don't feel like doing something good, we should pray, and then the Holy Spirit will empower us. can, and he often does. He does it for me, but empowers us to do good works. And third, being generous gives glory to God. I know I've quoted a lot of scripture time and again, but I think this passage from 2 Corinthians is just so beautiful because it just lays out why it is such a good thing to be generous. Okay, so I'm quoting the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8. And he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and generosity of your contribution for them and for others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And the context of that is Apostle Paul is like encouraging the Corinthians to follow suit of the Macedonians who, though they were poor, they gave even beyond their means for poor churches or poor Christians in the Jerusalem church. And they built that on the fact that God gave his only son 
the most precious gift. He's, it's, it's com- like compared to what God gave in Christ, any act of ge- generosity pales into in, like pales in comparison. Um, I do want to address because some people are worried when it comes to generosity about being taken advantage of. It can be very painful. Um, but I don't want you to be deterred. So when it comes to like being generosity, do your do your research into that person, into that church, or into that organisation you're planning on giving to. To minimise minimise your risks of being uh, scammed or donating to a wrong charity. So please, before you give anything, do research. Be wise in that. But even if you do minimise your risks of donating to a sham charity and prayerfully give, even if you get duped. It may be hurtful for a while, but you have a better inheritance in heaven, so you can joyfully accept being plundered and taken advantage of here on earth with worldly things. I want to say, don't let the worry of it take, being taken advantage of or being too hesitant in the name of wisdom give your, cause your hand to tighten on giving gifts. I just want to read from Hebrews 10, which is where I get the idea of not being worried about getting plundered, because actually it gave me that extra motivation to be more, be more generous because of this encouragement from God. It says, Hebrews 10, and I'm going to read verse 32 to 37. I recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly expo- exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And basically, I'm just going to stop there, but basically, the writer of the Hebrews says, like, you know, as a Christian, your treasures are in heaven. You've got far more abundantly up there in God's kingdom than you do down here. So don't be sad when things down here get, get destroyed or taken advantage of because you're investing in the kingdom up there. So don't worry about being taken advantage of, or don't let that be a deterrent for your generosity. Okay, so that was a long point two on the goodness of generosity. I want to go on the flip side now. Point three, the sadness of stinginess. So going back to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 24. So I'm going on the flip side now of the parallelism. So it says, another withholds what you should give and only suffers want. And this really confronts the attitude of, I need to have this financial security, i.e. have a house, pay off the mortgage, or have a car, before I can start to be charitable with my money. And I really appreciate an analogy taught to me on the Christian Medical Fellowship Student Conference, because it beautifully spoke into this situation. Basically, one of the teachers of the finance seminar recalled a conversation he had with another person who professed to be a Christian, and somehow they got onto the topic about discipleship and money. And basically, the other person said to the teacher, um right, when I reach X amount of money, then I'll start donating towards the church or be more philanthropic. And then the teacher asked him, well, how much are you giving now? And the person says, nothing. And then in that session, the teacher said, you can bet your last dollar that that person will never be in a position to give. Because, frankly, greed is insatiable. If you're always waiting for this certain amount of security before you can give, that security will always go up and up and up as you get richer and richer and richer. So you never reach the point where you give. And so that was really like an like a encouragement or command to like give now, even though you're not financially rich. 
They don't let there be like a security threshold you're going to have to reach before giving. This is what the text says. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Like, I'm not going to give until I get to this position when you should. And all that happens is you want, you want, you want, you want, and never be in a position to give. So watch out for that. And the other danger about increasing your threshold is that your heart will be dominated by accruing more and more material wealth. And if that happens, it will be hardened towards God. Um, if you don't believe me and think that you can afford to accrue more wealth whilst not being hardened towards God, I suggest you listen to Jesus in chapter, Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be or will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's as clear as that. Jesus is saying it's either God or your financial wealth. You can't have both. So the idea about accruing more wealth is there's only it's a one-way road to this disaster. Be very careful, therefore, if there's a desire in your heart and you, if you're serious about being a Christian. So I want to say it's not impossible to be rich and be a Christian, but you've got to be taking Jesus' words very seriously when he says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. If you have wealth, watch out. <laughs> um, okay, going on to verse 26, part A people curse him who holds back grain. I think there's no better example to illustrate this passage than hoarding in the coronavirus pandemic. So early on in the pandemic, we saw those scenes and those photographs of like supermarkets getting raided, like all the shelves gone in an instant. As soon as they were stocked up, they were gone. And you just saw in things like BBC news articles that you see this poor essential worker in his uniform and there's bare nothing on those, till, on those shelves. You just think, like, that guy is working so hard, and yet, uh, for something that helps our society to keep going, and yet, the way society is treated has almost made him unimportant. So this guy's got nothing to eat after a long 12-hour shift, and then you're expected for him to work again. And I guess that, like, the reason why he he didn't have anything to eat is because everyone hoarded. Because everyone was worried, like, everyone's going to buy stuff. Uh, Like, you snatch things and everything like that. And you saw in news articles that like, people were saying, like, how selfish of those who've hoarded. And it's like, this is exactly like, the illustration of this passage. Like, the people cursing who holds back rain. So, like, like, um, you, like, you can't, like, it's not right, and it will do you harm in the eyes of other people. You just keep holding onto things that other people need without a consideration. Get labeled selfish, inconsiderate. And actually, if you keep hoarding things that people want, you can actually be a victim or target of crime. They never targeted beggars to be held for ransom, just so you know. All right, continuing on, verse 28. Um, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Um, Slightly tangential, but I think it's important to say. So there's something to be said about the way you regard money indicating the way you regard God. And the way you grab money affects your walk with the Lord 
and your spiritual life. And so recently, our pastor Henry has preached on the book of Malachi. And there were a couple of verses that really struck up to me, but it's like this. So Malachi is written, and one of the things that God accused Israel of, because they were judged for their sinfulness, is the way that they were disrespecting him and dishonoring him by not showing the due honor to him. So if I just read from Malachi 1.6, a son honors, his, this is God speaking, a son honors, honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? And in that letter, God lists out a chain of sins that Israel is guilty of committing, which shows frank disrespect to God. And uh, if I may point on one particular which is relevant to today's passage, it's on the issue of money and tithing. So it's quite a famous Old Testament verse, but it says, like Malachi, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed of a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So I remember watching um, a sermon by a very famous Christian preacher called R.C. Sproul. Some of you might know him here. And basically he was teaching on uh, Christian world mission. And in part of his talk, he quoted um, the fact that a survey found that like 96% or only 4% of American evangelicals were tithing their income year by year. And he was saying that means 96% of American Christians are systematically robbing God. And that was quite a sobering point. And I want to want, like, ask, is it any different in the UK? I read an article 20 or 30 years old. But it said only 10% of Anglicans tithe. And unless you have strong, compelling evidence, I don't know if that should be any different from other churches, denominations in the country. So... There is some serious disrespect that we're in danger of if we become stingy and not give God his due honor. And ultimately, what is the point of accruing millions and millions and houses and houses by the end of your life? What's going to happen to them after you die? You don't need to speculate because the Lord Jesus tells us himself. There are two passages that like, come frankly to mind about the person who thinks, I can keep getting more wealth and more wealth and... That will benefit me and there will be no harm. So one of them is the parable of the rich fool, where there's a man who does not regard God, and because of a surplus of produce one year, he thinks, because my barn's too small to make the most of this surplus production, what I'm going to do is I'm going to knock down my original barn, and I'm going to build a bigger one so that I can store more crops. And then because of that, I have enough income to supply my whole life, so I can just take it easy, rest, and chill. And you find that attitude in London. So, like, what I want to do, like, a lot of people might say, what I want to do is get a really affluent job, earn millions, and then retire at 40 and then chill out. I see no difference between that and the parable of the rich fool. But what does God say happens then? God says to that person, you fool. And he says, your, your life will be taken away from you this very night. And then what will happen to those goods that you've accrued? And that's like a really sober warning shot to anyone's listening that if you keep building your life on the, like, the, the, accumulation of wealth it could be taken away just like that there's nothing stopping you from dying tonight and then what good will those those houses or those millions in the bank account do for you if you're not rich towards god you'll do nothing and then jesus also says what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world so you can be as rich as elon musk and you can you can buy twitter overnight like that with 43 billion pounds but 
you don't acknowledge God, if you don't trust him, you don't honor him, you've just forfeited your soul, and all that money, all that wealth and power and influence is for nothing. You've just lost your soul. So don't be stingy. Like, be rich towards God. And earlier in the passage I said one of those things is to be generous. And so moving on finally on to application. So I go back to ask the earlier questions. So I just want to wrap up things to make sure that like, we can summarize and remember what's been said. What are the things you think about? Like, what are the things that you desire, the thoughts in your mind, in your heart, as you lay in bed or go about your everyday? Is it things of this world, such as a nice car, house, career, things which aren't bad in themselves, but they dominate your mind, they become an idol? Or are the things of heaven? Christ, his kingdom, his character, and being like him in character. And don't forget, earlier what we said, remember where these things, these desires lead. Righteous desires lead to goodness. Wicked desires lead to wrath. Focus on good things and put to death the bad things. Second application point, remember the gospel. God gave his one and only son freely and undeservedly on our part to save us from a most desperate need, which was our enmity with God because of our sin, impending judgment, and everlasting destruction in hell. God didn't need to do that, and yet he did it. He gave his most prized I wouldn't say possession, but the thing that he held most dear, his son. And so if you believe that God did that, then it's inconceivable how you cannot be generous towards others. So there are several like, heart-touching ways that this is put in the New Testament. So Paul says, like, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave it all up for you to be rich, to be with him in heaven, that your sins might be forgiven. Gave it all up in generosity. And then in Ephesians it says, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So again, I say, in light of the gospel and what God did for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we conscionably withhold that which is due to others and to God? So let the gospel change your hearts, your attitude in your hearts when it comes to thinking about your possession. and Let it transform your life as you freely and graciously give to others in need for Christ's glory. I think I'm going to touch about, like, just, I'm not sure I'm going to do this point justice because it's all well and good being generous, but I guess the question is what you're going to be generous to. And so scripture would say if you're going to be generous, there, are a prior, there is a priority Again, what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Give to things that contribute and aid the advancement of the gospel. That's our number one priority as Christians, God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what we're supposed to look to first. So, with aplomb, be generous towards gospel initiatives, gospel actions, gospel organizations, things that will get people to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says in Luke 16, like, Use your worldly or unrighteous mammon here to gain eternal friends. How do you do that? You invest in gospel initiatives so that when they hear the gospel, they believe and be saved forever. So, like, if you want an idea about what to be generous towards, that's a priority for you guys. And again, I remind you, if you're worried about provisional strength or need a change in character to give to good and honorable causes, look to no other than our God and our provider. 
He richly provides to those who, who are faithful to him and who trust him and obey him. He does it every day. Even today, you can think of countless things that God has given to you, even though you didn't deserve it. And never forget that he gave your son, his son to us, his only begotten son to die on the cross in the most anguishing way so that we could be forgiven and be part of his family. So let the gospel drive your actions. So I think I'm going to close in prayer. And then I've asked Vicky to play, play a song for us, um, which is, um, I'll say in a minute, but let me just finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for scripture. Thank you for its power and its beauty. Lord, not only what was written in scripture is true, it also is also beautiful and wonderful and powerful. It produces godly and beautiful lives in, the, in your people. And I pray, Father God, as a result of tonight, I pray that whatever is right according to your word that I've said, would your Holy Spirit use to change us and sanctify us and help us to be more generous people like your son, Jesus. Please, Lord, help us never to forget the gospel, that you gave your only begotten son, Jesus, the one who never did any wrong, the one you delighted in perfectly. You gave it to a people who are so ungrateful, so wicked, so undeserving, and yet you did it because you're a generous and gracious God. I pray you would help us never to forget that and let that warm and soften our hearts as we extend that love, generosity, and grace to other people. And Lord, I pray for those who listen to this who might not know the gospel, who are not knowing about what Jesus did for them, I pray, Father God, that they would realize that Jesus has died on the cross to pay for the penalty for our sins, that anyone who believes in him may have their sins forgiven, be right with you, and be guaranteed a place in heaven. So, Lord, thank you for today's Bible study, and I pray you would be glorified and honored in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... The song I've asked Vicky to play, and I'm sorry if I haven't sent it to you, is number 79 in the Red Books. God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. It's a really wonderful way of capturing just how much Jesus has done and how that should fuel and motivate us for generous living.